0: Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine, with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. This autumn sees blood cancer charities across the UK and around the world joining forces. Abby House from Blood Cancer UK explains why.
1: Blood cancer being the fifth most common cancer in the UK but awareness way lower than it is for the other four common cancers. Over half of people don't know a single blood cancer symptom which is shocking considering it is The third biggest cause of cancer death, we need for GPs to be quicker at referring people for tests because we know that the earlier a blood cancer is diagnosed, the more chance the treatment is of being successful. People with blood cancer go to the GP more times than people with other types of cancer before they get diagnosed. Also, a lot of people diagnosed with blood cancer in this country are not aware of all the support and information that we offer. So we want to make it clear that if you've been diagnosed, you're not alone.
0: So talk me through those symptoms.
1: They include weight loss, bruising, bleeding, having maybe nosebleeds or very heavy periods, unusual bruises that appear that you can't explain, lumps, shortness of breath, drenching night sweats is one. Also having repeated infections. If you just can't shake off a cold or a flu or you keep on getting one infection after another, after another, that can be a sign. And Having a high temperature, sometimes a rash or skin problems. Itchy skin is sometimes a symptom pain in your bone or joints or tummy area, tiredness, which can be like an exhaustion that even when you've slept and rested well, you're still feeling completely drained. And also having a paler complexion. It's important to know some of them appear differently on people with different skin colours. So for example, having a paler complexion, that may be easier to spot on someone with light coloured skin. On people with darker skin, they may look greyish complexion, but also you can spot that paleness on sometimes the beds under your fingers nails, the palms of your hands, soles of your feet or on your eye as well if when you pull down your bottom eyelid it's pale rather than red.
0: Blood cancers can occur in people of all ages with the risk increasing as you get older and on average someone is diagnosed every 20 minutes. How many types of blood cancer are there and what do they do to our bodies?
1: If you go right down to the different subtypes there's over 130 different types but broadly people will be familiar with the word leukaemia. There's actually quite a few different leukemias there are some which are very slow growing and may not impact someone very much and there are some that are very fast developing and they may require treatments like stem cell transplants there's also conditions called lymphomas people might have heard of Hodgkin lymphoma non-Hodgkin lymphoma there's different types there there's also myeloma and we have also conditions called MPN and MDS which sometimes aren't mentioned as much as the other broader ones like leukemia but they do affect a lot of people basically in all of them some of your blood cells have become abnormal they're not doing jobs that they're supposed to do your body can't function properly and that's what blood cancer is
0: you mentioned stem cell transplants for some types of blood cancer and i know part of the combined charities awareness push is for more people to come forward from all sides of our multicultural community to be bone marrow and blood donors I've seen first firsthand the amazing difference that can make, so I'd actively encourage anyone listening to visit the wordandhealth.com website to find out how you can do that. Raising money for support and research towards a cure is a key thrust of your activities this autumn. Where are things at with treatments and finding a cure for blood cancer in all its guises?
1: It's definitely a really exciting, fast-moving time in blood cancer. And I've seen so much happen in the four years that I've been at Blood Cancer UK. One reason why is blood is super easy to take out of your arm and study. So when you have solid tumour cancers where you've got tumours, for example, you need to remove them to really investigate them and look at them under the microscope. It's so much easier to do that with blood. Blood cancer research today a lot of it is about looking into those very specific mutations and changes that have happened inside the genetics inside a cell to see why has this turned into cancer. And in some ways, we may be able to prevent blood cancers happening by being able to have treatments that target those specific mutations. In other ways, it may be that a person develops a blood cancer, but by looking at exactly which genes are affected, we can tell whether a lower dose of chemotherapy will be enough to put this person into remission. And that means we can not give unnecessary treatment to people who don't need it. And that's where we're moving into much more personalized treatment. So a treatment that's not just for your type of a blood cancer, designed for you, for exactly how your cells are behaving.
0: My grateful thanks to Abby House from Blood Cancer UK. To find out more and to link through to organisations that can provide help and support, log onto our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. According to data from the Office of National Statistics, despite the ending of social restrictions, more people across Britain are lonely today than before the initial outbreak of COVID-19 and lockdown one. 3.4 million adults, including a sizable number of young people between the ages of 16 and 24, are chronically lonely an increase of 800,000 on 2020. A cause for concern for the campaign to end loneliness, their programme director is Robin Hewings.
2: All of us will be lonely at some point or other, and it's tough, but it's a regular part of life. But when loneliness becomes chronic, when people say that they're always lonely, it affects us really deeply. It makes it hard for us to break out of it. We dwell on things, we lose self-confidence, we lose self-esteem, and we get stuck there. And that has really serious... serious effects on both our physical and mental health.
0: Which begs the question, Robin, how and why?
2: Feeling well connected is one of the most important parts of our well being. It's something that, when we're thinking about what we want to get out of life, having good relationships is really central. It's partially what motivates you to go to the doctors for a screening or these things which we do for our health, which are kind of not always that much fun in the moment. What motivates you is our relationship. If you look at a lot of adverts to encourage you to give up smoking or to to go and get your diabetes checked out, they're often not saying this is in your rational self-interest. They're often saying do this so that you can enjoy this thing with your family or so you can make sure that you're around to look after your children. And there's also some psychological things. It being lonely is bad for our sleep. Being lonely makes us more stressed and on edge, going back to our evolutionary need for contact. There's more we need to learn about exactly the relationship but we think there's very good reason for why we should really be taking this very seriously.
0: What can those of us who aren't chronically lonely do to help those that are? And if you're listening to this report and recognise yourself as being one of the 3.4 million chronically lonely, what can you do to help yourself?
2: When you're lonely, it's almost like a catch-22. You feel a lack of connection, but it's actually harder to reach out either to new people or People you already know. You fear rejection. You remember things that didn't go quite right much more. But you brood on them, and so being the one to reach out to pick up the phone, to suggest meeting up—that's a really good thing to do. There's a surprising extent to which we value just those little interactions in our day-to-day lives. That you can lift someone a bit just with a smile and a nod, and a sense that the person who lives next door to them or just down the street is a kind of friendly person, rather than feeling that you live in somewhere where People don't talk to each other. There are really good things people can do in terms of volunteering. And that might be to support different community groups that aren't particularly about loneliness, but are just about connecting people. There's also very focused on loneliness. People can volunteer to be befrienders, pairing people with people who might be very frail, might really struggle to get out of the house to increase the numbers of their social connections and talking to people who have benefited from those services. People really value them, they can make a real difference because you can find out with someone who's quite different from you, perhaps in terms of age or life experience, and it can be a really rich and rewarding experience for people. So there's a whole range.
0: And finally, Robin, if I were able to grant you three wishes to eradicate chronic loneliness across the UK, what would they be?
2: Not feeling that loneliness is a personal failing, but is a normal part of everyday life, is a really important part of it. We also do need to recognise that people who are lonely, it's hard. them to get out of and it's important that there's individualised support to find people and to give them self-confidence and self-belief that they can get back into the rhythm of having a good social life. And finally, I think that it's about having a rich set of options in the communities that we live in, some of which might be quite formal, things which are very focused around bringing people together, some of which are just having a nice park to go to where you might go along, bump into people you know, there's someone to play football with, with that kind of mixture of people feeling less stigmatised, supported, and then a nice range of options for people to come together. Not that no one will ever be lonely ever, but what we can do over a long period of time is get to a stage where people are not chronically lonely, where people don't just get stuck there.
0: My grateful thanks to Robin Hewing for more information on chronic loneliness and links through to organisations that can provide help and support. Log onto our website www. Word and health.com that's www.WordOnHealth.com. you can find us on Facebook or followers on Twitter our address being at word on health keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter this is word on health with Paul Pennington many of us have heard of bipolar disorder but this doesn't mean we all fully understand the diagnosis Simon Kitchen is CEO of the charity bipolar UK.
3: Bipolar disorder is a severe mental illness characterised by extreme mood swings, so people will experience kind of really big highs, which can tip over into mania, into psychosis and hallucinations, can result in people being sectioned and then also really deep lows as well, depression, where people experience severe suicidal thinking, people might be in bed for several months, probably the most common severe mental illness, but most people with bipolar have about ba- living a balanced mood at any one time, so it's not that people with bipolar are experiencing all of those emotions all at the same time. For your listeners, if they want to be able to get a good grasp of it, we would recommend looking at a thing that we have on our website called The Mood Scale, so that's bipolaruk.org and that really sets out the different moods that people with bipolar experience. We've also got it in an app as well, and it helps people kind of understand they have got bipolar, they're able to track their moves, but also if you haven't got bipolar, it's sometimes really hard to appreciate that kind of range of emotion that people have. So if you're able to see it written down, that can be quite helpful.
0: Simon, how prevalent is bipolar?
3: So, a lot more common than people think. Best study was done Back in 2014, by the government, and that estimated it was about two percent of the adult population. So it's one in fifty. The survey itself only went down to age sixteen, so we don't really know what it was in people sixteen and below. So it's probably well over a million people within the UK. It could be up to about one point three million. Most people will know at least two or three people with bipolar, whether they realise it
0: or not. What do we understand about the triggers for bipolar? It's
3: a genetic condition. People inherit it. It's not quite. As the level of heritability is not quite as high as you'd expect. In twin studies, if someone's got bipolar, their identical twin has a 70% chance of having it. So it gives you a good indication it's predominantly genetic. No one chooses to have bipolar, but in terms of the level of heritability, it does vary, but it certainly runs within families, but it's probably a lot lower, it's probably more closer to 10% chance. So if anyone's listening to this and they've got bipolar and they're thinking about having children, the chance of your children having bipolar is actually a lot lower than you probably expected to be people's bipolar is triggered by trauma So a lot of people with bipolar you will tend to find have had an experience of childhood trauma in some format whenever like they maybe lost a parent or have experienced some form of abuse or something like that and then after that there are other kind of forms of triggers which are tend to be around sleep. So the best advice, if anyone's listening to this who got bipolar and want one word of advice on how to manage a condition, make sure you're getting 7 or 8 hours sleep because that is the most important thing. 80% of people with bipolar tell us that it was lack of sleep was what caused them to relapse or to have their first episode. And then taking antidepressants can trigger people because it then causes them to have a manic episode. And then like anything that involves stress and change in their lives. So starting a new job, getting a promotion, going on holiday because you're flying, you don't get enough sleep. That's a big factor, obviously bereavement, lockdown was for a lot of people. So anything that causes stress and you're not able to find a good routine to kind of aggravate your bipolar.
0: How difficult or easy is it for bipolar to be diagnosed?
3: This takes nine point five years to get a diagnosis, which is far too long. One of the challenges is that the doctors aren't necessarily picking up on it. So you need three green lights to be able to get a diagnosis. You need to be aware of the symptoms yourself. A lot of people aren't aware that mania is a sign of bipolar. As we of saying there's a number of different types of bipolar. So there's type one, which is depression and full blown mania and psychosis. There's type two, which is predominantly more depression with just the high for me, yeah. And then you get people who are mixed state, which is where you get both at the same time being really depressed and also having a huge amount of energy, which is really dangerous. And then you've got cyclophemia, which is where it's kind of a mild form, which hasn't quite got to full-blown level yet. Everyone in bipolar experiences some depression. And most people go to their GP about the depression, but because they're going to the GP, they either don't know about the bipolar symptoms or they don't want to talk about them because the hypomania is one of the things that's a very pleasurable experience. And if everyone could just be in hypomania all the time, they probably would, would choose to do that. just because of the risks of mania and then they eventual depression which is the big problem and then also people just have contextualized memories so when they go into gp about depression all you can remember is the time that you're depressed you'll have no memory of the time when you had high energy so it's really important for the gp to be able to be aware of what the symptoms are and to be able to ask important questions the nice guidelines said that they should be asking people about high moods there are some really amazing gps that ask that question there's some that don't i'm, I'm not going to be here to blame the gps we can't be specialists and everything and then you've also got to get a psychiatrist because a diagnosis can only be and by a psychiatrist. There isn't a genetic test, there's not a brain scan you can have for bipolar. All they can do is to be able to go through and to be able to identify moments in your life when you've experienced hypomania and kind of those behaviours that we were talking about earlier. There are about 50% of people with bipolar don't have a diagnosis. So there's about half a million people living out there, probably listening to this interview now, who are living with bipolar and they don't even know that they've got the condition. And it's probably doing terrible damage to their lives and they're probably really like hating themselves for that damage as well because you hurt people around you and it's a really horrid thing. People carry a lot of shame and guilt as well. There's not any plan in place at the moment within the NHS to improve diagnosis rates that we can find and there's not any kind of sense of urgency around it at all, which is a really big worry. And there's a kind of trend towards more generic services, which would help a little bit, but people with bipolar need specialist treatment. And also, importantly, peer support. There's a really great model out there. Everyone's familiar with it with Alcoholics Anonymous, where people come and support each other to get off the booze and stay sober. And with bipolar, it's a very similar sort of community that we're building within our charity, is to get people with bipolar to come together to support each other to live well and to be able to put in place some of the difficult lifestyle changes that they need to, to be able to, to manage the condition. So it's the person living with the conditions
0: in control, which is the most important thing. Can it be treated successfully?
3: It really varies on the individual, but I would say whoever's listening to this, never give up hope if it hasn't worked out for you so far. For a lot of people, it's very treatable. We work with lots of people who are living with bipolar and you would have no idea they're living with a condition. They probably haven't had a, a serious episode for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. And it's a chronic condition. Most people need to take some form of medication. There's about 26 different medications people with bipolar can take. And it's getting the right combination and dosage, which takes such a long time. Alongside medication, we would always advocate people having a really good self-management plan in place. A lot of people can live really amazing lives with bipolar. It doesn't need to hold them back at all.
0: Doing my research, I can see that it's a condition shrouded by unhelpful myths and misconceptions.
3: Now people are more aware of the term bipolar. People say, oh, I'm a little bit bipolar, flippantly. People aren't going to be massively offended by it, but it is a severe mental illness and it's not about mood swings. And there's a tendency when we talk in this country about mental health to try to normalise it. We try to kind of minimise it and that's not the way forward on this. There's a big difference between feeling a bit sad each day and feeling a bit happy and then experiencing bipolar. I guess another myth would be around people are often scared of people with bipolar. If people are managing the condition, are supported, they're exactly the same as the rest of the population. Most people with bipolar are leading a stable life at any one time managing it really well. They'll probably understandably be very private about it because there's a lot of stigma around the condition. So that's something we'd want to change. So another myth would be around there's nothing that can be done to support people with the condition. So there's a lot that employers can do. If you're managing someone a bipolar and they come to you, it's a protected under the Equalities Act as a long-term condition so you have an obligation to make reasonable adjustments. But the reasonable adjustments are no different really than from the flexible working requests that staff who've got children or caring responsibilities will make. So it's being able to ensure people are able to get enough sleep is obviously one of the key ones so if someone isn't sleeping to allow them to be able to come into to to work a little bit later is a good example of that making sure people have got clear objectives so they're not being like piled on lots of work when they're working really productively when they've got hypomanic days, just being aware of the symptoms and helping people net them in the bud. So those would be kind of some of the, the key myths that we'd want to, to bust.
0: My grateful thanks to Simon Kitchen from Bipolar UK. To access the resources highlighted in this report, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, our address being at Word on Health keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington.